you will join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. This morning we're looking at verses 12 through 16. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 981. The title of our sermon this morning is Straining Forward. Our key words for our worshipers in training are perfect, ahead, and attained. The current record for the marathon in the world is two hours, two minutes, and 57 seconds. That's held by Dennis Kometo of Kenya. This was set in Berlin in 2014. Just to help you with the statistics here, that's an average per mile pace of 4 minutes, 41.4 seconds, ran over 26.2 miles. Not much slower for the women is Paula Radcliffe of Great Britain. She ran a 2-hour, 15-minute, 25-second marathon in London in 2003. That's an average per mile pace of 5 minutes, 9 seconds, I've always, uh, I've always been sort of a, a fan of marathon, Ironman, triathlons, um, watching the races, participating in a few. I think about that, and I'm amazed. A four-minute, 41.4-mile average over 26.2 miles. I guarantee there's not a person in this room right now that can run a single mile in four minutes and 41.4 seconds, let alone come anywhere near 26 of them. There's not a a man in here who would come close to Paula Radcliffe's record and running five-minute miles over 26 miles. Forget about doing that consistently time and time again. And as impressive as that is, the Ironman triathlon is really the true test of one's ability in terms of endurance over long periods of time over three different events. The Ironman is a 2.4-mile swim in open water, a 156-mile bike ride, followed by a full marathon 26.2-mile run. The world record Ironman time is 7 hours and 45 minutes and 58 seconds. To put that in perspective, the average finishing time at the world championships for the Ironman is 12 hours and 35 minutes, almost double the world record. If you've ever been around the world of endurance racing, you know just how impressive those numbers are for people to be able to compete. Now, there's no doubt that these athletes have natural abilities. Nobody can race like that without a certain kind of body, and there's no doubt uh, that uh, they are able to sustain these things because of how God has gifted them. However, they don't get there by talent alone. It takes a tremendous amount of hard work. It takes a tremendous amount of dedication. It took hours upon hours every single week of training. It took a meticulous diet. It took a meticulous sleep schedule and rest. Every minute of every day is set to fine-tune their bodies and their breathing and their abilities to be able to accomplish those times at those races. They didn't just wake up one morning and decide to start running, to start swimming, to start riding their bikes, and it all came together for them to set a world record. Now, a little bit of a different story is the speed skater Stephen Bradbury. He won a gold medal in 2002 at the Winter Olympics, but there were four men on the ice in the finals, and in interviews after the race, he said repeatedly, I was not the best man on the ice. In fact, I was probably, at best, eighth in the world. He knew it. 
He was in the finals by a hair, but the other three were far superior to him, and he knew that going into it. So as soon as the race got started, his plan was to just hang back and get fourth place. And the other three were racing. They were neck and neck. Bradbury was just sort of drafting off of them. But coming into the final turn, the lead man fell. The other two tripped over him. And Bradbury skated across the finish line and took the gold medal. Now, a lot of people were critical of his win. Uh, when, he, uh, when he got there, he himself was a bit critical of everything that had happened. He sort of felt bad about that. But then when he got on the podium and they were playing his national anthem he realized he had won fair and square, the rules of the game. So whether you're the top athlete in the world and it's certain that you're going to win and you might even set a world record or you're the guy who's hung back a little bit but was able to win the gold in the end, the finish, that's what matters the most, isn't it? There's a lot of pain, there's a lot of struggle, there are a lot of bad, difficult days along the way, there's a lot of painful moments and memories, but in the end, if you don't cross the finish line, you don't set a record. If you don't at least start the race, hang back, hope someone else maybe falters so that you can cross the finish line, you're never going to win the gold medal. And when the goal is achieved, we we begin to realize that all the stress, all the pain, all the difficulty, all the struggle was worth it. It was worth it. There were times you thought about quitting. There were times that you thought it'd be better to just give up, but you pressed on. You hammered it out. In the end, in the end, you finished victoriously. And you say it was worth all of it. And our text this morning, the Apostle Paul uses this image, this image of a foot race, to illustrate this point that he's making about the Christian faith, and especially dealing here with his own race in the faith, running after the prize of everlasting life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognizing the race has been filled with challenges, it has been difficult, it has taken a lot of effort along the way, but striving for the prize and getting to the end and crossing the finish line through the tape... That is worth it, to stand on the podium with the gold medal. And we need to get the context, so we're going to back up a little bit in the text and start reading from a few things we've covered in the the weeks past, but our primary verses this morning are 12 through 16. So let's begin, though, reading in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
Well, over the last few weeks, we looked at verses 8 through 11 that we read, and Paul's declaration that he counted everything that was his by virtue of his Hebrew roots as loss. He counted it all as rubbish in order that he might know Christ, that he might gain Christ, that he might be found in Christ, that he might have a righteousness from Christ alone, that not he himself, that he might do all of that, but by faith, by Christ and the power of the resurrection, that he would share in his sufferings and become more like him in his death to obtain the resurrection from the dead himself. And so this morning he continues to build on those statements. He counts all that was his in his flesh as rubbish that he might attain the resurrection from the dead. And what was all of that based on? It was all based on the final, finished, completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was all based upon the fact that Jesus came from heaven to earth and lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life, dying a sinner's death in the place of those who by faith trust in Him. It was all by virtue of the fact that Christ's righteousness is to be counted to all who love Him and follow Him by faith. And so Paul turns to this reality, standing by faith upon the righteousness of Christ and not his own, and is able to count everything that would be counted to him by his flesh as rubbish, that he might press on by faith in the Lord Jesus. Knowing Christ, being one of Christ's, being secured by him, having his righteousness is far more valuable to him than anything that his flesh or this world could offer. And so now in verses 12 through 16, there's a shift in emphasis. And he's dealing now with the Christian life and the race. And primarily he's dealing here with sanctification. The process of the Christian life whereby we are made to be more like Christ, to be made holy. We have Paul telling us all that is in All that he is in Christ is not as a result of anything he has done or anything that he is. It's all of Christ. But now he says, but that doesn't mean I just sit still. That doesn't mean I just sit back. That doesn't mean I just let everything pass me by while I wait to go to heaven. No, I'm going to fight my way to the finish line. So three ways we're going to see this play out in our text this morning. The first is in verse 12 where Paul shows us that we must work out our sanctification knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ already. It's interesting how Paul presents this juxtaposition here. This thing about being a Hebrew of Hebrews, you remember back in verse 4 he said, if anyone has reason to boast in the flesh, I have more. And then in verse 6 he said, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. And remember, all of this was him outing those false teachers, those Judaizers, those people that he was warning the church about. And these were the things that they looked to to determine whether or not someone was going to have a right standing before God. But Paul looked at all of this and he said, now, as it pertains to Christ, as it pertains to knowing and loving and beholding Christ and walking in light of what the law actually means in terms of my heart and my life and my practice as a Christian, I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet. I'm not walking in perfection. So I keep persevering. I keep pressing on because I'm not there yet. And you're not there yet. 
We are not yet glorified with Christ, and that is not going to happen on this earth. So you see him setting these two things against one another in stark contrast. Sure, in terms of my fleshly credentials, I had everything anyone could have wanted. But that's rubbish. I want Christ. I want the gift, the joy, all of the value of the resurrection from the dead to be with Christ. And I don't have that yet. The standard is Christ, and I fall far short of measuring up to his perfection. Paul's point here, Paul's Paul's outlook is his own sanctification. It's his own process of being made more like Christ, becoming like him. It's all Paul is striving for. He's He's already said that. We just read that. Now, we struggle to talk about the Christian life in this way sometimes because we want to be so crystal clear about the sum and substance of our salvation, and rightly, rightly so. We want to be clear about our justification, that it is by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, apart from any efforts of ours, apart from anything in us, by us, or through us. It is all of God. But, but we can't overlook the fact that the Bible is filled with commands. The Bible is filled with all kinds of things that God calls us to, to be and to do as His people. How to live, how to interact with others, how to commune with Him, how to delight in Him. All of these are things that God calls us to as His church. We don't become Christians by God's grace and then just sit back and watch it all unfold and wait till the day we die to go and be with Him in heaven. No, we're rational, responsible creatures that God gives responsibilities to. He calls us to faithful action, and we need to take faithful action. We need to be in the daily fight for holiness. The daily fight to grow in the Lord through His Word. Communing with Him, communing with His people, being in prayer, gathering with the church, being hospitable to one another, encourage one another, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. In all of these things, we are called as God's people to specific action. There are things that God calls us to actually do. And if we get it wrong, we generally get it wrong in one of two ways. One way that we get this all wrong is we put, the, we put the cart before the horse. We get the sense that the Christian life is all about doing everything, attaining our salvation and keeping our salvation. So we have law without gospel. The Christian life is, is just a drawn-up set of rules and regulations. We do the right things, we don't do the wrong things, and we keep on going on this pattern throughout life. Now, I'm talking here about people that may very well be born-again believers in Christ who live the Christian life from a legal standing. Everything is viewed from a legal perspective. And it comes out in our interactions. It comes out in our dispositions toward others, in how we talk about Jesus, in, in how we talk about the substance of the gospel and the Christian life. A legal hearted person, which all of us, really by nature, we all are, But a person who really hasn't grasped the grace of God in the gospel is very often living at odds with others. They always have some kind of grudge with others. They always have a standard of judgment that most people don't meet. They're, They're quick to cut others off in relationships. They're unwilling to forgive. They always talk about relationships in in how it goes with the law. 
in where justice is to be found. It's always black and white. All life is lived from this place where there is no interaction with grace and mercy. We are all naturally legal-hearted. But it is only by grace, it is only by understanding and embracing the implications of the gospel that we ever escape from this disposition. Legal-heartedness is quite the opposite of what Paul says here. Notice Paul's affirmation is that he's not perfect. He's striving ahead. The legal-hearted person will surely admit that they're not perfect, but the life they live and the way they live it and the way they try to portray it is quite different. They will go about the day-to-day of life and their interactions with others with an affirmation in their own heart that they really do have things pretty well put together. Well, the other way we get all of this wrong is that we just say, well, everything is by grace. God has saved me. The Lord Jesus has died for me. So I'm going to sit back and let God do all the work. This is gospel without law. It's equally as egregious. We, we abuse God's grace. We distort the intentions of the gospel. This is the place where we can get sometimes when we just assume, you know, Jesus has died for my sins, so I'm just going to live my life. And there's no concern whatsoever for a life of holiness, a life of godless, uh, god, godliness, a, a life lived in such a way that the glory of God and the sacrifice of Christ, you know, all that really matters is that Christ died so that I can live life without consequence. In other words, I'm using Christ. It's a life that really looks no different from the rest of the world and has no concept of the fact that God really does require something from His children. That our lives look different from the lives of those in the world. And so you see, this relationship between law and gospel is critical We have to understand how they work together and to miss that relationship and to wrongly emphasize one to the detriment of the other is to wrongly understand both of them. They both have a place in the Christian life. And we need to understand that relationship if we're going to ever be able to work that out and be sanctified, to be made more like Christ. Now, now that being said, the right place of the gospel in relationship to the law is first and foremost having a sure confidence that we are in fact in Christ. And being in Christ, we are saved, we are kept, we are indefinitely the children of God, and He will not let us go ever. We are His now and forever if we are in Christ, being conformed to His image day by day. And we have to know that. We have to be certain of that reality in order that we can make progress in the Christian life because if we aren't certain of our salvation, if we aren't assured of our place in Christ, every step toward obedience is going to be attempt, an attempt at earning something on our own merit. It's going to be a me-driven effort as opposed to a grace-driven effort. It's going to be me living in fear that maybe God loves me less today than He did yesterday because I messed it up and I wasn't as spiritually minded today as I was yesterday. I'm going to live in fear because I should have tried harder. But you know, the harder I try, the more it seems like I'm not making progress. But when we know When we know we're secure in Christ, we can run the race without fear. We can run the race as hard and as fast as we can muster because we're running the race already knowing the results. 
The results of the race were announced before we began. Christ died for you. Christ calls you His child. Christ has given you new life in Him. Your righteousness comes from Him. So now you can be certain that as you run, you're running without any doubt whatsoever that you will cross the finish line and the Lord will get you there. But you're still called to run. You're still called to run hard and fast, even though you know the results already. But you still have to run the race. And so the question Paul asks from the text, from his own life, is are you running? Or are you sort of lazily going about? What is your disposition toward the race, knowing that the end is in sight and knowing that the results are already in? Paul goes on, verses 13 and 14, and he shows us in our second point this morning that we must work out our sanctification with our eyes on the end, not depending on the past. Notice at the beginning of verse 13, Paul wants to emphasize once again that he has not arrived at the end of the race. He has not yet made it. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I haven't arrived yet. He wasn't being self-deprecating here. It wasn't like everyone was hearing this and saying, yeah, right, Paul. You're, you're the most godly man You've you've certainly arrived. No, it's verifiable fact. What was his aim? Remember, his aim wasn't a pretty good Christian life that looked holy to everyone else. That wasn't Paul's aim. Remember, what was the prize? He said to attain to the perfection of the resurrection of the dead. And so there's an incredible intensity to what he's pursuing here. Notice he writes, but one thing I do, one thing, I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is intensely focused on the finish. One of the most famous foot races in history happened on August 7th, 1954. There were several runners, but only two that anyone had really paid any attention to up to that point. That was the British doctor Roger Bannister and the Australian John Landy. Many of you maybe know this story. A few of you might be old enough to remember this. They were the only two men in the world at the time who had completed a one-mile run in less than four minutes. Both of the men were in peak condition when they arrived at the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada. Bannister strategized that he would relax during the third lap and save everything for his finishing drive. He was known for his final kick. But as they began the third lap, Landy really began to step it up, and he was breaking away from the pack. And so Bannister adjusted his strategy, and he increased his pace, and he gained on Landy. Eventually, he got right behind him. They got around the third lap. The bell rang for the fourth and final lap, and they were even. They were in a dead heat. Landy began to run faster. Bannister followed suit. Both men were flying around the track, setting a new record. Bannister thought he was going to lose if Landy didn't slow down just a little bit. But then came a famous moment that has been replayed thousands of times since then. I'd encourage you to go watch the race on YouTube. It's Less than, it's right at four minutes, so it doesn't take long. It's fascinating. 
But just before the last stride lands, the crowd is roaring. Landy knew Bannister was right on his heels, and he couldn't help it. So as he's running, he looks back over his left shoulder while Bannister overtakes him to the right. As he looked back, Bannister surged ahead and won the Empire Games that day by five yards. John Landy committed a fatal flaw in running a race. Never look back. In fact, there's a statue now where that happened. And the statue is both men and Bannister's running forward and Landy's looking over his left shoulder. He'll forever be remembered for that. But that's the image that the Apostle Paul is drawing on here. Forget what's behind. Keep running forward when a runner turns ever so slightly at those speeds. There's a moment that he loses focus, he loses his stride, he loses momentum. And when someone is right there on your heels, every fraction of every second matters. So what does Paul mean about this as it pertains to our sanctification? Are we just supposed to forget everything about who we are and what we, what we did? No, this, is a, this isn't about that. This is a forgetfulness that is about not being complacent because of our past achievements. You see, for Paul especially, he has already outlined all the ways that he could have done that. There were many things he could have looked at that would have given him some sense of being ready to just sit back and coast. And I'm not talking about the times as a Pharisee. I'm talking about the times as a Christian. He's an apostle, a man who was beaten, a man who was betrayed, a man who was shipwrecked and living in danger upon danger, left for dead, all because he was a Christian proclaiming the gospel. There came a point in his life where it would have been easy for Paul to just sit back and say, I've done enough. I'm just going to wait it out here. I'm soon to die. But what does he say? He says, no, I'm not looking back. I need to keep pressing on. I need to keep looking forward. I can't lose my stride. I'm not looking over my shoulder. This final kick needs to be even stronger than the first. And you know, there are people you will meet Christians in your life. And God forbid, should any of us be one of them. They kick hard at the beginning. If you've ever run a race, pacing yourself is so important. And all the excitement and all the adrenaline at the starting line, people take off as fast as they can. And if you're running a long race, you can hang back a little bit and you know, eh, I'll see them again in about five miles because they'll be walking while I'm still running. There are many people that will take off as hard and as fast as they can, but they can't keep the pace. And they fall back and they relax. They get to tough places. The world gets hard. The Christian life is difficult. They start to walk. Some of them sit down. Some of them abandon the church altogether. They're relying on past accomplishments. They're relying on what lies behind them. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't don't do that fatal look backwards over your shoulder to the way things were and depend on the way things were to get you across the finish line. Paul wasn't looking back. Paul wasn't going to let his focus be diminished. Paul wasn't going to be lulled into a sense of complacency or indifference. No, in fact, Paul was... 30 years or so down the road as a Christian toward the end of his life, and he's shifting all of it into his highest gear. 
He's not depending on his achievements. He's saying, I've got one thing I'm going after, and I don't have it yet, so I'm going to keep striving, and I will not stop until I get there. I'm forgetting what lies behind, and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead for all that I've got. If you've ever ever watched sprinters or people who run something like the mile or the half mile, when they cross the finish line, they're almost falling on their faces. They used to have people there to catch them as they came across because they're leaning forward into the finish line to get there as quickly as they can before the others. And that's the image that we have from Paul. He's leaning into the final stretch. His body is, is forward. His arms are reaching out. His stride is long. Every time he pushes off the ground with his foot, he's being propelled forward. His breathing is shallow and quick. His legs are burning like there's fire inside of them. His feet are aching. His throat is dry. His mouth feels like a desert. But he will not give up. He keeps pressing on. Now, I know some of you are cringing at the description because you've never liked running. But this is what it is. And this is an apt picture for the Christian life. Sometimes the prize needs to be more valuable than our comfort in the moment. It's painful. Don't depend on getting out far enough ahead in the race that you can just coast in. There may be a lot of track behind you, but there's still track ahead of you. And that's what matters. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's what Paul calls elsewhere that imperishable wreath that he's striving for. He's striving to fully and completely gain Christ for whose sake everything else has been counted as loss. For Paul, the greatest reward was to know Christ fully and to experience perfect fellowship with Him. To be sanctified along the way that He might be more like Christ when He arrives. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the prize that Paul sought. That is the prize that Paul is calling us to run toward. I really hope everyone here is familiar with the story of Eric Little. It's Little, not Lydell. It's spelled Lydell, but it's Little. He was an absolutely incredible man of God, an incredibly fast runner, a man of conviction and principle like every, very few people you will ever meet in your life. Eric Little was featured in the movie Chariots of Fire. It's who it's about. What the movie doesn't really show is how faithful of a Christian Eric Little really was. It gives an idea, but it's not well portrayed. But for one of his races, he was the favorite to win in the Olympics. But that race, his primary race, was scheduled to be run on the Lord's Day. And so he didn't run. He was in church where Christians are on the Lord's Day. Now, Most people would look at that and say, well, Eric, it's just one Lord's Day. Why don't you go and race? It's not a big deal. Everyone's going to understand. But Eric Little saw that God's law and what he calls his people to was far more important than a medal that would hang around his neck. Because the medal that he was striving for wasn't something perishable, it was imperishable. And so while everyone else ran that Lord's Day... Eric Little sat in church and heard the word of God preached and fellowship with the people of God. Now, you don't really see much of that in the movie, but what you do see is a race in 1923. 
when the competing track teams of Scotland and France were fighting neck and neck, among the events remaining was the 440. As the runners were leading into the first turn, they were all bunched tight, shoulder to shoulder. Eric Little was pushed off to the ground, off the side of the track, and for a second he was down. But then he got up again, and he started running again. He was 20 meters behind. That's a long way to be behind in a 440. His knees were high, his head was back, and he got the nickname that day of the Flying Scotsman. And as the leaders sprinted to the finish line, he emerged ahead to win. Now, what would most runners have done? Most would have waved a fist and dusted themselves off and complained about it, watched the outcome. They might have had a few words to exchange afterwards. But Eric Little, no doubt, knew Paul's admonition here. Forget what's behind. Forget what happened. Get up. Strain forward. Go for the prize and forget about what lies behind. Focus all of your energy on the race. Fly to the finish line. This is the way every Christian is called to live in Christ. Listen to Paul's explanation to the Corinthians. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Apart from a failing mind or body, we are called to relentlessly press on toward the finish line to fully and completely gain all of Christ all of the resurrection, and ultimate perfection. Are you getting old and tired? The Lord calls you to put the pedal to the metal. Are you young and full of boundless energy? Be a man, be a woman of one thing. Set your your eyes on the prize and go, go, go as hard as you can. Don't hold back. Don't look back. Lean into it. Because the finish line is coming a lot sooner than you think. And it's worth it in the end. And again, the best part is, you already know the outcome. You don't have to worry about losing. So why not press on as hard as you can go? Well, last thing we see this morning, verses 15 and 16, is that we must work out our sanctification, trusting the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and faith along the way. Our text ends with some wise, gentle advice from the Apostle Paul. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. The funny thing about being spiritually mature is that you only are when you have walked with the Lord for a while and have a sense that you're really far behind. The spiritually mature person refuses to be satisfied with with backward glances of spiritual achievements. But Paul is here telling them, if you forget this, and you will at times, if you forget how to press on and persevere to the end, God is going to graciously correct you. Paul trusted that the Spirit of God was going to guide him by faith and by grace, as he always has. The things the Spirit always gives to His people, that we would be wise in our journey. All of us have times in our spiritual lives where we sort of get this idea that we've arrived at something. We've defeated some pattern of sin, or we've, we've learned something great, or we have some great soul-enriching truth that we've been feeding on, and it's like we've, we've arrived at some greater place, and we've been faithful in our spiritual disciplines. We love doing them. Whatever it is, we can name a lot of things, but in the end, when we start to look back, the Spirit of God is going to sort of turn us and say, remember the prize. This isn't it. 
These are great things. You want these things. You are. This is part of that striving, but this isn't the end. Keep going. Keep going. We're not there yet. And we need that. Oh, how we need that reminder. We need to focus to attain Christ, to be made more like Christ and have communion with Him. Perfect communion with Him is the prize. We shouldn't settle. Yes, we must praise God for where we are and how He's brought us thus far, but brothers and sisters, there's more to be done. There's more sanctifying that needs to go on in all of us. You know you are maturing spiritually when you finally get to the place where you can climb to the top of some spiritual mountain and know that when you look out, you're only going to see an innumerable range of mountains to climb that you will never be able to traverse in all of eternity. So Paul exhorts us in the end, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul's saying, brothers and sisters, together, arm in arm with me, let's all go together with the same heart, the same passion to know Christ. Together, let us strive to be more like Christ, that we might know Him in the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by all means possible, we might attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's do that passionately, faithfully, joyfully. Let's do that. You know, Eric Little was an incredible runner, but it paled in comparison to his faithful devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1925, he completed his degree in science at Edinburgh, and he went on to seminary and got his Master's of Divinity. He set sail then as a missionary to China with the China Inland Mission. In 1932, during his first furlough, he married Florence McKenzie. In 1941, Facing the growing threat of Japanese occupation, he sent his wife and their three daughters to Canada to stay with her family while he stayed to continue to serve the poor in China. Little suffered many hardships, but he kept running hard after Christ. And then in 1943, he was interned in an internment camp in China where he again cheerfully served all of those around him. In 1945, at the age of 43, Eric Little died of a brain tumor that is now believed to have been caused by malnourishment and overwork in the internment camp. Little's grave was marked by a simple little wooden cross. They wrote his name on it with boot polish. But now he rests in the mausoleum of martyrs in China. I don't know what the inscription reads now, but if I were to write it, I would write one thing. It would say, he died running. He ran for the prize. What will your inscription say? Let's pray together. Father, may it be that each and every one of us would die running, leaning in as hard as we can for the prize, that we might know Christ, that we might know the power of the resurrection, that we might strive to the end to be glorified and complete and perfect union and communion with our great God. I pray, O God, that you would do that in each and every one of us, that today, as your children, we would have a renewed sense of our need to commit ourselves to the race, to keep running as hard as we can. The end has already been determined. The finish line is already set, and it is ours to cross. The prize is awaiting us. 
We do pray, O oh God, by your Spirit that you get us there. That you help us to not falter. You help us to not look back. That you help us to keep pressing forward. For those who are not in Christ, I pray, O oh God, that today by faith that they would get on the track and start running. Running for Christ that they might attain that imperishable wreath, that imperishable prize that is forever ours in Him. We pray, O oh God, You would do all of these things, that You'd be glorified in Your church, and that we might know You and trust You and love You more fully. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.